Hey everybody, welcome to Thumbnail, a visual arts podcast. I'm Joe Roshert, illustrator, animator, and adjunct professor. And I'm Louis Rosignol, visual artist, and today we have a special guest on the show from New York City. That's where you live, right, Tommy? Correct. Cool. So, and is that where you're originally from? I grew up on Long Island, which okay. is kind of similar, you know, it's like New York area, but except I never went into New York. So your name is Tommy Kane and you prefer Tommy, right? Not Tom. Well, I was Tom Kane basically growing up, but then it was during the internet age, everyone was buying like a domain and Tom Kane was taken there, some famous voiceover guy like in Hollywood. But Tommy Kane was available, and that was like 20 years ago. So I morphed into TommyKane.com. You know? So that's what you go by now. Yeah. My wife and I got married, went to get our license, you know, marriage certificate, and I wrote TommyKane.com <laughs> as my. I mean, if anybody who's familiar with illustration probably has seen your work or is familiar with your work in some way. How long have you been illustrating for professionally? See, that's the weird thing. It's like I don't do it professionally. I just do it for my own fun. I was really just in advertising my whole life. And now it's gotten to the point where I've done like a few jobs and stuff, but I hated it. I hate, it makes me hate to do art. So I just <laughs> stop any jobs that come, I say no, you know, even I've been doing these little animations and stuff. And so I get creatives calling me like, hey, you want to do a job for me? And I'm like, no, I don't. Like, I'll end up hating it. We're going to make change after change after change. And then instead of enjoying this, I go, it'll be a misery and I'll stop doing it. And they're like, I understand. That's funny. So I was wondering, because Joe was thought, like, he's in advertising. He's like an art director. And I've always thought of you as an illustrator, because your work is very illustrative. And, and I know you've done some work. But I agree with you. I, I hate working with clients and doing endless rounds of sketches and changes. And so I tend to not like to do them either. Or if I do them, I'm going to do one round. And if you like it, then great. If not, then I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I'm retired from advertising. I stopped five years ago. So financially, I don't have to do it. So it was just like, I'm not going to do this anymore. It was just too painful. And But a lot of my work is influenced by all my time in advertising, because in advertising, you're always getting assignments, you know, and it's always kind of like um, you're going against five other creatives. Everything is like a competition. So you're always generating ideas over tons and tons. And a lot of them, they're just like, we hate these. This doesn't work. Client doesn't like it. So you can't get too in love with your things. You're just a churn and burn machine of ideas. So it started to happen in my drawings. You know, I go, I just go in all these directions because I like solving little puzzles and creating these ideas in my head, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of related, the advertising. And then I would work with sort of big illustrators, like in the 90s and 80s. So it was guys that were doing the, like my heroes, uh, Wilson McLean and, you know, Guy B.O., all these guys that were doing the covers of like Time Magazine, Newsweek and all that. I started to succeed as an art director. And then I was selling these campaigns and I'm hiring my heroes. So I'm like, I can't be an illustrator. Like I saw compared to these people. They're, they're geniuses. And then they would say like, well, you know, I'm halfway done. You want to come over to the studio and see it? And I'm like, oh, oh, really? Like I could come and like hang out with you? I'm like, sure, come over. So it almost made me think like, well, I can't be an illustrator because these guys are illustrators. Look at their, you know, the work. It was like hanging out with Michelangelo and I'm like making little like cartoons, you know? So that's funny. It sort of discouraged me from going down that avenue. And then the weird thing in advertising is they kept giving me money, even though I was like 22, 24, 25. They're like, we want you to be, you know, an art director. We want, you know, then they'll be afraid I'd go to another agency because of 
my ideas and th- things were succeeding. So they were like, we're going to double your salary. We're going to give you another 15 grand, 10 grand. So I'm like, why would I go be an illustrator and making 50 bucks in my apartment and struggling when these people can't stop giving me money? It was a weird, it was like a trap, you know? Yeah, I, I feel that. So I think that that's interesting because you're in New York City and you're working with all these huge illustrators. Mm-hmm. But if you were in like a small town like Joe and I, you wouldn't probably have felt that way. You'd be like the best artist in this town that we live in versus being in New York with all these great illustrators that might have been intimidating. Maybe you would have went a different route if you had been in a small town. Well, it's funny because I went to school in Buffalo, art school there. And so by the time my my last year, they have the Society of Illustrators at that time, they were having, they have like a student show too. So it's kind of like not easy to get into, but I got two pieces in. And so it became a huge thing in my school. And then the Buffalo Evening News wrote a tiny little blurb, like a story about it. It was this sort of big thing. And then one day my professor is like, the Buffalo Evening News called. I want to like take a look at your portfolio. You know, and I was like 12 years old, like scraggly long hair. And I go down there and they're like, they go, when do you graduate? I'm like, June. They go, do you want a job? And I'm like, sure. So I'm not even out of school and I'm the illustrator for the Buffalo Evening News, which is a major newspaper, you know? And I remember being like so little and skinny and just, I'd be in a bar, right? So then I started doing stuff and I succeeded so well that they were giving me like political editorial things and sometimes the cover of the magazine section. And I'd be in like a, a bar and like start talking to people and they're like, hey, what do you do? And I go, I work at the Buffalo Evening News. They're like, really? I go, I'm an illustrator. And they go, do you do stuff like that guy Kane? And I would like, I would almost like have like tears in my eyes. Like, wow, I can't believe this is happening to me. That's crazy. And so I succeeded so quickly out of the gate without even really graduating. But I'm like, I can't stay in Buffalo. I grew up on Long Island. I knew Manhattan. So I'm like, I got to move to New York because I want to live there. And so much was happening. And it was all like, It was just so crazy. So I was always comfortable being the worst person surrounded by everyone that was great. I didn't, even though I was like very good in Buffalo and reached the pinnacle, I didn't want to stay there and be, he's the most clever guy in Buffalo. So the second I came to New York, I went to the lowest rung, you know. It's like you're in grammar school and then you go to high school and the seniors are like beating the shit out of you, you know. And you're like, well, I was the (laughs) coolest guy in my grammar school. What happened? You know. Yeah, but that's good for your art because the more you hang around people that are so much better than you, the better you get. And then I'm sure that you feel like a much better artist after all these years of spending time in yes. New York with those no, people. That, that did happen. But it also like right away, I was like, oh, this is a whole other league. I'm in a different, you know, because then it, I sort of got interested in advertising. And I remember when they interviewed me, I went to this big creative director's uh, office and it was in one dag Hammershaw, which overlooks the UN and the water. And the guy had a corner window. It was windows this way and that way. And it was so big. You know, this is the days when ever before the internet, right? And it was like when they made TV commercials and stuff, the agencies had tons of money, you know? So it was this gorgeous place. And the guy had all these ads and stuff on these well, major ones for like Life magazine and, you know, huge, right? So I'm like, did you photograph all these? Did you do the painting in this? And the guy's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, <laughs> he's like, we did none of these. We hire professionals. He's don't, you know, anything about advertising. Because I just sort of took illustration in school. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't intended to be in advertising. So I wasn't a designer. I didn't know about type. So I was so clueless to what was going on. 
that the guy was like scratching his head like, well, so when he looked at my work, there was no ads. There wasn't an ad. There wasn't anything. It was just all illustration. And he said, look, we're going to hire you to be in the bullpen. They had these studios where you comped up all, all the type had to be said. And so before computers, every ad like campaign, there were beautiful drawings were presented to the clients, right? So he said, right. we had a guy, he's been here a million years, he's in his 50s, and he had a major heart attack. We let him go home at one o'clock every day. So even though you, you look like you're 12 years old, we're going to hire you half the day you work in the pulpit and half the day you can draw. So suddenly I went from the Illustrated the Buffing News for like a year. Now I'm in New York and these people are saying, we're going to give you money. All you do is draw. So it was like as good as it got, I still had a job drawing, you know. I wasn't right. like an illustrator. I wasn't in all these magazines. And then inadvertently how I became like an art director because I was just in the studio, like uh, the top creative director of the place would come down and they'd have these loose sketches. And I'm like, all right, I see what you want, you know. And I do that drawing. The guy's like, hey, it's pretty good. Then I was around others and they'd show me the tricks, you know, working the kind of like they had these Lucy machines where it was almost like a projecting. And you had to find every photo. It's going to be an elephant on the roof of the Empire State Building. You had to go to books, like find a picture of the Empire State Building, right? There was no internet. You had to physically, right. all these books, like everywhere, reference. It was hard, you know? So as I would do these drawings, the guy was impressed by me. And then the better you get at it, the quicker you can do all these things. Then you got free time. So I'm doing caricatures, everyone I work with, making them really fat, their nose big, they're, you know. And so they're like, hey, the kid's like really good. He's funny. So then I would take the guy would show me the assignment and the drawings I had to do. And then uh, in my head, I'm like, I got an idea for this, too. So I would do my own little drawings. And then the, when the guy came to get his stuff, I go, hey, I did some, too. And he's like, oh, those are, that's pretty clever. That's good. So quickly over time, they were like, you, we don't want you in the studio. We want you to be an art director. And I said, no, I go, I like drawing all day. Right. And. This took many years, maybe like three years or so. They had a big account. It was a cigarette account. And it was kind of like the client was saying, like, we don't like you're not solving the problem. And they would do pitch after pitch. And this is in the days where it's like 10, 12 teams, like 20 guys. And then they go, if you don't solve it, we're going to open it up to other agencies to try, you know. And it was sort of like half their billings. So I was drawing so much that the agency bought me a drafting table the chair, light, everything for my apartment, which I shared with like wow. this girl. And they bought me like every set of magic markers. They go just at home because if you have to work on the weekends and nights and they go, you're not that far away. He really liked me and they didn't want me to leave, you know. And uh, right. so I went home that weekend and I did all these ideas and drawings. And then I came to the guy like Monday morning and I said, because he had asked me, they were so desperate. And I was like, remember on Friday and you said that if I had an idea for the thing? And, the, and he's like, no, I don't know. So I showed him all my drawings of my ideas. It was really one campaign. And the guy was like, holy fuck. Like, I think you solved it. And if, he made me go to the meeting, which I was terrified at because, um, you know, I was just like a fish out of water. But I showed all my stuff and the client bought all that stuff. So then he was like, we are physically giving you an office and taking you out of the studio. Like, we're not allowing you to do that. You have to be a, 
And that's when they even they doubled my salary that day. So that's how I kind of <laughs> and then over time, you're just in New York in the 80s, which was like the Wild Wild West. There would be like a bar in my neighborhood. And I'm like, they don't have a license. It's just it's an old laundromat that they took all the machines out. You go in fluorescent lighting, you can see like all the pores of your face and like the and it was just sort of barrels with beer and they would have vodka and nothing else. And you're like, it just open all day long, all night, you know, like all these crazy places. It was so just like the wild, wild west. So I started to lose my dream of that. And I was really into advertising and just partying all night and meeting every freak because it was kind of like the Jim Jaramushes and all the kooks that were in those movies. And they were the ones in the bars and who you're starting to hang out with. And they're your buddies. And then it's the future people that are the movers, shakers, filmmakers, musicians, actors, were all the people like in my neighborhood because I had gotten a place in the East Village near like Avenue A. Yeah. yeah. This is 1980. So it was just this very creative, kooky, crazy like art, which doesn't happen anymore in New York. Everything became so expensive that creative people don't really sort of move to New York and live in the city in the East Village. It's just not. You would move to Detroit. If you have no money and you need a space like where to find a band and I need a big warehouse, like I'm not moving to Manhattan or Bushwick or it's like, you know, that HBO show Girls. Mm -hmm. Say, I like when it first came out, I go, this is great because it's girls that they get out of college and they move to New York, but they never go to New York. They're way out in some Bushwick somewhere and they they never set foot in Manhattan. I go, that's but here it was in the 80s. You lived in Manhattan and no one else came in because it was so dangerous. There was no Kmarts or CV or nothing you know you it was just like it was run by the criminals the street you know and that's why like the police slept in their cars you could just open a bar you could open a galley you didn't need to like get a permit or a thing or whatever you just do what you want unless you're waving a gun around then it's like you got to put the gun away you know <laughs> i have a question about and I could take this anywhere because you have so many great stories. You said, you know, you worked for the Rochester newspaper way back when you were just a kid. Buffalo, yeah. Oh, Buffalo. Sorry, not yeah. Rochester. So maybe I'm 21 at the time. And I know you said, you know, you really never considered yourself an illustrator or you, you don't really like working with clients and doing the edits because it kind of ruins it for you. Did you feel that way back then when you first started or is it because, no, because you because got... there was a little dream of, because I had gotten into the Society of Illustrators, two of them. There was certain people like, you know, Matt Mahurin, remember, he became really huge. So there was a few people like us got into that show, people that were going to sort of do it. So I was like, you know, my professors were like, I was clearly the best person in the school. Like it went from, right? Because I was like a sponge. I would see what people were doing. And I always was like, they're not going to tell me they're going to be like, I'm not going to tell you how I did this. But they were the opposite. Let me show you exactly what I did and how. And I'm like, oh. And then by trying to imitate that, you don't quite... And it looks like something else and it becomes right. your own thing. So that's what I, I was forming my thing, but I sort of was able to. I had a thing and a look. And a, so when you look through my portfolio, all 20 pieces were like, oh, that's by that guy, you know? I mean, that's the great thing about Lewis. I could look out the side of my eye and just see your thing in a car going 80 miles an hour and go, I go, that's, I know Lewis did that, you know? And I feel the same way as you. It's like trying to sponge up some of my favorite artists and no matter how hard you try to copy what they're doing, it's going to be your own thing because you just can't do what they do. And so I feel like that's how most people create an artistic style is just soaking up all these other techniques and, and stylistic decisions that other people make. And it becomes just who you are as an artist, right? Yeah. It's in fact, my friend started this thing called Sketchbook School, became like real huge. And it's sort of from 
amateur amateurs, the people who never did it, to people that are very good. And he asked, would you teach a class? And that was my thing. Because like in school, or you have in this head, like, don't trace, don't do this, that's not real art, don't do that. So my whole class was steal. I go, find <laughs> someone you love, like worship. God, I worship this person so much. Like, And I go, steal it, try to do it, because you never will. It's like, don't steal their ideas, but try their look. Don't be afraid. Yeah. Don't go like, well, there's a rule, like you shouldn't do that, so you don't. It's like, no, there are no, it's a blank piece of paper. What do you do to get it on there? And I go, I have failed tremendously into who I am because I'm not afraid to fail. And now you're like, uh, you know, I draw without a pencil, really. So it's because there's constant mistakes and failure. So I think it was Miles Davis or whatever. He was like, you know, someone's like, do you ever make a mistake? He said, it's not the mistake that matters. It's the note you play following the mistake. You know, it's like how you cover, you know, you go like, that was great. He's like, oh, I made like 40 mistakes. No one would know because right. you don't stop and be, stand there embarrassed. So when I'm drawing, like sometimes if I'm drawing a building stuff, I go, oh, I left out a row of windows or I forgot like something dramatic. But I'm like, I got, I just keep going and I see what happens or what, it, or if you ever do this, like I'll, I'll draw something like, oh, I'm going to draw this church. Then I start drawing. I go, oh, fuck, I cut off the whole steeple. I didn't. And in the past, <laughs> I would be like, I got to start over. And do I go, no, I didn't. Then I go, I'll just draw that part of the church. I fucked up or do something else as a result. And then I go, wow, I kind of like that. It wouldn't have happened unless I made that I'm so comfortable with my mistakes. If I draw for an hour, you know, may, I'll try to keep the mistakes down to 100. That's like a good, you know. <laughs> it's just that comfort. It's the note you play after it. So do you go into every sketch with the intention of it being a final piece? Yeah. So even though this is the radio, you know, like I could show you, I have a book here. All of my drawing books, every single solitary page is perfect. So it's a perfect completed so that to me, when I'm done, that book is it. If you put it in a store and just printed it exactly, each one is like that. Not only that, the, I'm so anal, the cover is like right now. So the cover of my sketchbook, I have a big one, maybe it's like 16 by 11 moleskin book, that I have stickers all over the cover. And where the stickers don't overlap, there's kind of a space, you see the black leather. I take acrylic paint and I paint in there. And then I actually save these little boxes of colored paper or just any kind of thing, those little stripes or or polka dots and things, and I literally cut them out and spray glue it. So the entire front and back covered perfectly every square inch is, it's like a collage. And then the two inside pages of the book too, I do the exact same thing. How do you get over the pressure of that? That's a lot of pressure you're putting on yourself with every sketchbook. I see it sort of different, that I'm so anal retentive that uh, over time I have developed this weird thing, and that's the only way I know how to do it. Like some people, like I'll see online, they, they'll have like a blog or a thing there on Instagram. So they're like, I had nothing to do today. So I just did this quick little drawing and put it on there. I would never do that because it's over time. It's just sort of you have all this garbage and then you go, all right, now they did a good drawing, are they? So I just taught myself to painstakingly draw no matter how long it takes to make sure it's right. Because it, to me, it's sort of about the end result and the end result also being the book. When I'm done, if I dogged it on a certain couple of pages, when you go through, you're like, that's not, you know. So it's my mind. That's how mental I am. It's a fanaticism. It's a anal retentiveness. It's a fear of failure. Like, God, I suck so bad that I have to make each page look so amazing that just say I'm somewhere drawing and some 
by accident, some illustrator walks in and then I can show him and he'd be like, holy shit, this is an amazing book, you know? That's great, though. Yeah, I'm wrapped in my head in a weird... To say, like, go back in college. Sometimes to do an assignment, I would have to draw for like 20 or 25 hours to make it good enough what I thought that I would bring it in. And I had a great professor because I started to really exceed beyond other people and I wanted his you know approval so I'd put it up everyone had to put up their stuff to get critiqued and when he would get to mine he's like yeah or, you know yeah, it's not bad you should have did this better that better and I would go out of there like my head in my hand and then I go not am I going to do the new assignment I got to keep working on this one I'd work on it work on it and it wasn't until the end of the semester that he was like, no, you got an A. You're like one of the best I've ever students. And I go, but you're always hitting. He was like, yeah, because I didn't want to tell. I wanted you to keep working hard. And I, I was so fooled by that. Yeah. It was the only way I knew how to work was to just work till I almost killed myself. And then I found like a 20-hour drawing started to take me 19 hours, then 18, then 16, then 14, then. So now, like, people say, well, how long did that take you? I'm like, five hours. I go, geez, it would take me like 20 hours. So I developed a way of working, and it was the only way I knew how. Even at the newspaper, I would get an assignment. It has to be by the end of the day. But I would, I kind of taught myself to come up with the idea quickly and spend my time on the drawing and not thinking. Like, all the art students that I live with in dorms or wherever, they would always come to me like the next day or two days later, like, I have this idea, you know, and it would be some elaborate idea. And I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. And I go, I'm spending my time on drawing. You keep thinking it's in the idea. We're just in art school. Just do something. Stop. And they would keep overthinking till, the, you know, the day before the assignments drew. And then they wouldn't spend that much time. They would spend it all on the effort of that. So I was always just like, draw as much as I can even if what I thought of sucks, and overwhelm them with the power of what you're accomplishing. So that's why my books, all of them, I have different size ones, ones I travel with. They're just as anal, each one. Do you still have all of them? No, not all of them, because I have like two books out, and I have another book coming out soon. It's with other people. It's almost like when you're advertising or an illustrator. Second, you make like a portfolio, and it's a great portfolio. I'm like, I don't give a shit where the originals are. Give them away, whatever. Even the books, I've given them to people as gifts and stuff. So it becomes less pressure, especially the internet. So we right. were pre-internet guys, right? Second, I have all my stuff on hard drives are loaded. I'm like, I could go get a print of anything I have at all. In the old days, the originals were, that was my portfolio. I'd literally go to an ad agency with the original. They would go through like Is a, that how you found your first ad job? Yeah. Did you go door to door? This is a funny story too. So I was at the Buffalo Evening News. Then certain people started to know who I was there, even some agencies. So I had this friend and he said, oh, my friend is a printer. You know, he makes stationery, anything like that. And he goes, he loves your work. He'd like to buy something. So I went to him because I had no money, really. Just got out of school. Wasn't being paid a lot at the news. So I gave him one of my originals. And then he printed up like a thousand uh, resumes with business cards. So I made a kind of like a form letter that I'd sent out. But everything had drawings. The resume was a four-pager with illustrations. So... There was no um, answering machine in those days. So I was going to move back to my parents and then look for a job in New York. So before I left, like a month before, I just sent out 500 resumes. I sent them to all illustrator agents, design houses, you know, ad agencies, anything I could think of. So both my parents were working. And when I came home, one day my mom was sick. 
And she said, uh, you know, I stayed home today. And she goes, the phone rang off the hook. She goes, all these places were calling for you. So Paces must have been calling, but you didn't leave an answer then, right? Oh, okay. There was no answering machine. It was a weird. Oh, wow. So she gave me a couple of phone numbers. It was like the day I got home. I got home like on a Friday and I made a call to a couple of agencies. And one was the one where I went, where's Dag Hammershaw Plaza. And that's how I got hired. So that was the very first interview I had. I walked in. The guy looked at all my stuff. He took me down to the studio. He was sort of like, you probably won't want to work here. You're pretty good. You know, like it's just a studio job. And I go, sir, I just want a job. So they hired me that day. So I got hired in one day. And that agency turned out to be a, a very huge agency with like major clients. So I succeeded in this place that was doing like heavy hitter work that was like seen everywhere, all the commercials and things. You know, here's a secondary weird story, but through advertising. So there wasn't only just this, the illustration and stuff. I sold some big campaigns and was working with very young photographers. And this one photographer, he was big in fashion. So he was shooting, you know, at the time, all the Revlon and all this stuff, but he couldn't make videos. So everything was MTV music videos. So I sold a campaign and it was kind of like celebrities that people didn't quite know. It was like the lead singer, Kid Creole, the Coconuts, and Buster Poindexter, David Johansson from the New York Dolls and stuff. So the photographer's like, we should try to do some of these guys' MTV videos. You know, I'm like, how are they going to let us do that? So I go, let's just approach them and ask them, you know. We became friendly with David Johansson. Then he had an album come out and he said, "You, I really love what you guys did. It's a longer story. I'll take, make it short. We shot his album cover and then... I said, let's call his manager and say, we'll do the video. So to make a long story short, Johansson called us and said, look, I don't have the power. RCA Records, is they have a lot of money. They spend it. I don't have a say, really. He said, but I can get you a meeting. So me and the photographer, we did storyboard. We came up with an idea, a concept. We storyboarded the whole thing. And I said, what else can we do? I go, let's do the casting. We'll shoot all the girls. We'll shoot all the locations. Because I knew about giving presentations. We go to RCA. And it was the president of RCA. We did the presentation. The guy was like, this is the best presentation I ever saw in my whole life. Bob Fosse was up for the job. There's all these kind of directors. And what you did in those days, you had to have a reel. So they had to shoot five things. And he said, they just send like a little typed up one page thing. Here's what I'll do for the video. And he's like, I've never seen anyone do something like this. So he said, I believe in giving young people a chance. I'm going to let you do it. And so suddenly now I'm making, I had never even made a TV commercial. Right. So, and through this guy, we did the video. Bill Murray was in the video. And then once we had one, we were able to do like a second and a third. So I was going down these other avenues. Now I'm in film. Like, how did that, you know, it was because of advertising. So I started using my illustration power in a way of that, doing these storyboards, ideation, stretching what I can do. And then other people are like, oh, you should talk to this guy, Kane. And then I was meeting other people, working with celebrities, doing. My friend was like so huge. He would shoot like the cover of like Run DMC, Tupac Shakur, Joan Jett, Age of Innocence, Don Henley, like on and on and on. So he's always calling me, Joan Jett's here. Like, why don't you come over? I'm like, all right. Like I was always around all these people. And I'm like, I'm just a stupid kid from Long Island. Like, how did I get here? He was the son of a police officer. And he had this like big loft where he shot and lived. And I remember there was no furniture. Upstairs, he had a mattress on the ground. And then it was when, you know, those big giant TVs. It's like if you got like a big right. TV, like a 50 incher in those days, it was like a tube thing. You know, you needed like five guys to right. lift it up to the loft. <laughs> and it was the only thing in there. And then at night, he'd be like, 
can you believe I own this television? And I go, yeah, I can't believe it. So me, look at our lives, man. Like you're a loser, I'm a loser. And people are giving us money to do all this shit. It's like crazy. It wasn't only That's nuts. illustration. It was kind of, I turned the world into advertising in my favor too, because I was shooting these campaigns and the photographers were becoming my friends. I did one where we used to always shoot in New Orleans. It was another cigarette one. So the guy was making so much money. He had a big Harley and he didn't want to ride alone. So he bought me a Harley Davidson because I gave him so much work. And we would do a shoot like in Miami or New Orleans. And he would hire two PAs. They'd load the bikes in the truck. We'd get off at the airport and there were the Harley Davidsons. You know, we'd ride around and it was just like this kind of crazy life. And getting, you know, people to always pay for it, right? I'm always in hotels and um, in LA, I used to always shoot there and I would just be in like, the Beverly Hills Hotel. Again, you know, I'm like 25, 27, a goofy kid. So I always kind of had friends ever. I remember once I'm in the Beverly Hills Hotel. And every time I came back to the desk or I'd be walking by and they would go, Mr. Kane, Mr. Kane. And I'd go like, yes. And they go, oh, you got some messages. So I'd take the messages and I'm going to the elevator looking. And it would say like Rob Reiner called, like Fuck, all this shit. And it was one of my goofy friends who lived in L.A. And he goes, Kane, they go, are they saying hello to you? Or they, I go, yeah. What? They go, they treat me like gold here. I go, it's because I keep calling the hotel and saying like, this is so-and-so, this is so-and-so, <laughs> and leaving messages. So they think you're important, you know? And I go, oh, fuck it. So, but it was funny. all, in a weird way, it all happened because I could illustrate, because I could draw. So it wasn't like this path of, I could draw, and then I went, and I became a guy that was in magazines, and everyone knew me for that. It was a kind of like a currency that I was using that all this stuff was happening to me, right? Yeah. I couldn't really read wow. books. I couldn't really, like, get good grades in school, but I could draw, and suddenly now... I'm literally like 30 years old or something. They make me like a vice president of the company. They would give these titles instead of trying to give you much more money. You know, at a certain point, they're like, right. we're gonna, you're going to be a senior vice president. You know, I'm like, oh, my God, it's amazing. But then I'm like, they don't want to give me another 20 grand. You know, it's like, uh, <laughs> like so drawing gave me this life. And we're because, you know, we're all the same. We're like, we watch cartoons as a little kid. We watch the honeymooners and you go, uh, we watch Batman and. All those kind of things that it's, that's what I was putting into all my work and advertising work too, you know, it was like, you have to do bullshit, but then every once in a while I would get away with an interesting, here I am shooting David Johansson from the Dolls in Chinatown with the street. And through that, the video we shot was hot, hot, hot. Remember, it was like huge. Yeah. And because my friend was a kind of rising star, too, we got all these models to do it for like 25 bucks. They go, we just want to be in it. Right. So he had a kind of power. And I was kind of helping him and everyone knew, oh, that's like the guy who's his friend. And so I did some kind of well-known things like I'm known, I know, Lewis probably knows I did the Steve Madden commercials, like the skinny little girls, with the big heads. Like, so to me, it was like an art project. I got this unknown person to do this thing and a client was like, I'm going to buy these. It wasn't like a typical campaign. I was an artist looking for other artists and what could I get away with? And I was trying to empower people too. So I'm trying to make those people money and art gave me this life, you know? Yeah. Like weird. I have a question for you about, sure. about location. So obviously you're retired from advertising and art directing. And, and when you came up in the 80s, there wasn't really an internet. And so being no. in, in New York was really important. Do you think it's as important now, like if someone's coming up and they want to get into editorial illustration or advertising? 
Do you think that they'd have a big leg up by moving into the big city or could they do it from anywhere now? I think now you can do it from anywhere because Instagram has proved that. To me, like I don't use Facebook, all that stuff. I got rid of everything. If you look at someone like Mab Graves, you know who she is. She's like in Indiana. From there, develop. you can develop your own following no matter how talented you are. People are sort of like, oh, look at this person. It spreads kind of like wildfire, suddenly juxtapose, does a little thing on you and you can. So I don't think that that's necessary at all, really. Because also what's happened to New York is it became too expensive. New York's not where like great theater or the great punk rock bands or something comes out of. Uh, nothing really comes out of there. So I don't know that it's that important just too expensive and weird. It's like anything, like how did Seattle happen? No one knows where it's going to come from, but I don't think it's coming from New York. There's no tourists there anymore. There's no nothing. It's the pandemic. It's right. kind of wiped out. When I moved to New York in the 80s, it it had gone bankrupt. You know, the garbage men weren't picking up the garbage. Or what, it was just who would live there? You lived there because you were an artist, a freak, a transvestite, a, you know, you had a band or something, but because there was tons of places to play. But now it's just, you know, too much like Chinese, Russian, uh, very rich people bought up New York, right? So it's just unaffordable. And that's not conducive to art. So I would rather, I think these kids already know that. They're like free Lancers that write code and do all these interesting things. But, you know, the guys yeah. in Pittsburgh, man, like they go, I don't give a shit. So I think it's zero important. So advertising is creatively taxing, right? So how did you avoid creative burnout? Uh, because... It's like a weird, the money is a weird thing. You get to a certain place where you, it's hard to walk away from that. I guess it's like an actor. Suddenly you're on this weird TV show and you're like, I want to be in these great Scorsese movies, but I have, I'm on this show, but it's paying you so much that you're sort of right. like, it's like weird. You can't quite walk away. So that's why I had all these other things. I was making the videos for MTV, helping them make like films and doing stuff sort of for myself. So it helped with the, the kind of that burnout factor because I could do other things. And then also I knew when I sold something that it was big enough clients that I could use to huge photographers, very famous kind of people. And once I got in there, like I would sit and I'd be drawing them and stuff. And then, you know, the assistant's like, what are you doing? Like, and I'm like, well, I'll just look at my work. And they're like, holy fuck. So I would do drawings of them. Like if I showed you my house, it's full of prints and stuff because they would give me stuff, you know, like right. I'd shoot with this photographer and the guy's like, hey, want one of my, you know. I'm like, sure. So I had a kind of big wild life, like being with the guy who was shooting all the celebrities and whatever. It was just, we could do anything, go anywhere. And I was selling big campaigns that I was literally shooting. I've shot in South Africa twice, then went on safari afterwards. I was shooting in like New Zealand, Australia, Korea. I was in charge of parts of Samsung and they sent me to Seoul like a million times. And I would jump from there and go to like Vietnam for a vacation or so I had all these other things that I was doing. So I didn't allow it myself to get burnt out in advertising. And so when you're working on these campaigns, were you also drawing these whole times? Yeah, th this whole time too. You have a, this, your sketchbook practice, like you do now. Yeah, I used to sort of paint, but the paintings were done more as. I got like more money and got a bigger apartment. I'm like, what am I going to put on my walls? You know, you go to some gallery and you're like, geez, that's, or even to frame some, you go to a frame yeah. store and you're like, geez, that's expensive. It's not even right. the print. It's the, so I'm like, I'll make my own. So I would just do these paintings and that would take that square footage. And I do another and another. I had these grips in the film business and I'm like, how do I make like a frame for the, and the guy showed me here, we'll take like mahogany. I'll buy you a chop saw. Here you do it. Well, I go, wow, it's amazing. So 
it was sort of done as like gifts and I was doing the thing. But a lot of it was hidden because sometimes, you know, it'd be late at night and we all go out and then I go, oh, I live right near here. And they would come over and they go, you did all this. Like they didn't even know in my office, mm-hmm. you know. Because the other thing in advertising is a lot of people who's, they start out younger, they go to school and they're like, I want to be in advertising. And that's their creativity. Right. right. Nothing else. So it's a kind of weird thing. And then every once in a while, there's a guy and he's like a writer and he's like, oh, no, I'm writing these plays. I write this other stuff. And then you read, you go, oh, my God. Yeah. He's just here to make money. But right. he's, a, he's some brilliant other guy. Then you would find there was pockets of those people, too, that were so clever. You know, the other thing is, too, because it's like competition, you're. It's like you're on a baseball team or something and they're like, you know, they're going to bench you, Kane. You're only batting like 220. You used to, everyone used to look up to you. So then you're like, fuck, you know, I got to win like one of these competitions, especially where it's like they're going to pitch business. So it's like us against four other agencies, 10 people at your agency, 10 people there. They, you know, it's like 50, 60 people. And some guys, you know, if you're losing your 10th one, then right. you get fired, you know. It's not even just sort of burnout. You gear up because you're like, I want to fucking win this thing. And they're hard, but every once in a while you get one, it's like a validation. Because all artists, insecure, you're insecure. You're right. like, am I really a fraud? Is it, you know? So those little things helped you to keep going and helped sort of the burnout. Because you're like, I don't want to work on this thing anymore. Now you have a new client. And then it's going to take you a year before you go, I fucking hate these people and I don't want to <laughs> work on it. So you just try to, that's how it was, like an ebb and a flow of a... And then it got to like an advertising where no one ever said a word. I had a little easel. I used to do these paintings on cardboard. So always had paintings and artwork going in my office. I didn't have to hide it or anything. No one came in and was like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to do this. You're supposed to work on Like you could do whatever the hell you want. You could play video games for five hours. Didn't, right. As long as you had the assignment, right? In the old days, it was like, all right, you got two weeks to work on this. So you fuck off for a week and a half and then you <laughs> solve it, right? But more and more the time crunch got shorter and shorter with the internet you could just find stuff you know they want it by like thursday and you're like oh but we just oh, okay i'll i'll do it so you always have free time you're around creatives you like you take a table and you put a piece of string and then you go oh, let's play ping pong over it or we always had these weird dartboards and you have like competitions and so you're spending hours doing at one agency they had this like empty room. So I put up one of those Nerf basketball mm-hmm. things and I put them both on either end. And then I started just drawing on the walls and I drew the entire crowd and every- it took me like a few months because I do a little bit yeah. each day at lunchtime. And everyone's like, wow, this is fucking. Then it became the playrooms. When you're at an ad agency, there's a lot of playtime and goofiness that goes on to it's part of like, you know, if you're in a rock band, you have to grow a long hand, do this thing. It was kind of part of the environment that I enjoy. It's not all terrible. What was the ideation process like then? Because this is a far different process than what you're talking about with your personal sketchbook. So when you're going through ideation, what are some tricks or, or ways you do that? Or maybe a lot of artists do. In advertising, you don't work in a vacuum. You have to work with a team. Mm-hmm. So if you're not director, they would hook you up with a writer. And then over time, I really kind of liked that because the people would surprise me like, oh, fuck. And then over time, you learn like, just because he's the writer and you're author, like, no, you can. I started to think in words, too. And that's why right. I, I always had a pad. So everything was visual. I go, I go, give me a minute, give me a minute. And I, da, 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 I would draw. And then I go, here's my there. And I would show them. And then they go, oh, wow, that's interesting. I always like to solve things just visually that you could look at it and go, oh, you don't have to read a lot. Mm -hmm. And then you never have the full burden on your shoulders, right? It's like you and someone else. What I learned right away is to find the smartest person 
and have them want to be with me. If you have the best writer, if they hook you up and the guy is like a moron, you're like, oh, fuck, I'm, uh, I'm screwed. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like <laughs> pretending to be Mr. Super Cool and I knew everyone and I'm on these MTV things and they're like, oh, I want to work with that guy, you know? Right. So they would split you up and stuff too. And you're just always with other people and you just learn. I guess it's like, just like if you're an actor, you have to work with the other actor. You just don't come in and like, Jack Nicholson's going to go do his thing. You're sort of like, all right, what are you going to do? I'll go here. You're, bu you're working together. You, the, the people who are, are generous are the people that you're drawn to, and that's how you learn from. And I did that for years. And then over time, you realize some people aren't really that good at this. Because there are a lot of people that are very good designers and things. But I was kind of good at the ideation as in my w stuff would win a lot. But afterwards, I would just put Helvetica, Helvetica type, and this that didn't interest me. So one creative director is like, do you mind if we can I have someone else design? I'm like, fuck, yeah, the, you know, no problem. So just over time, I, I realized I was confident and good at ideation. So now that when I draw, like five years ago, I became vegan. So a lot of times I'll see a story about something and I go, an idea comes in my head. So then that's what I'll do in my sketchbook. Like even recently, if you saw where coronavirus jumped into the uh, mink population, which oh. I didn't even, oh. yeah, like in Netherlands and, but it's a weird kind of strain of coronavirus. So they, oh, wow. in Denmark, they're like, we're going to have to kill like a million minks, you know? So it's just happening. It happened like two days ago. And then I found there's other places like in Netherlands, there's one in like in Portland. Oh, my word. So I just start getting these ideas and drawings come in my head. And then even when the pandemic hit, I was doing these little animated videos and things because they're just something's happening and I, I get a flush of ideas sort of come out. You know? mm -hmm. I do want to talk about your drawings because they're incredible. And it seems like you draw mainly from life, right? rather than like from photographs, it looks like you're, you're going out into... It's a combination. Okay. So when I can, I will use life. But when I can't, like certain ideas, like a mink, I can't like go to a pet store and go, do you guys have minks by any chance? And then... That's what I was going to ask you about, because you've, I know you've traveled a lot and you've got some great, yeah. you know, you have pictures of you, I think on your website, where you're, you're out there with like a little camping stool drawing, you know, yeah. and that's ideal. But there's a lot of people. And even if you just live in New York City, there's so much to draw. But if you live in a small town, you don't have access to all that. You do use the internet to find pictures and stuff to draw sometimes. It's the adage of like, is tracing really right? Should you use, you know, like steel stuff? And what happens is all you have to do is look at the greatest illustrator in the world, James Jean. And you're like, that he's pulling scrap and reference to make right. those things. And the, so I'm like, I'm going to do the same thing, right? There's no... I learned to overcome and not think like you do caricatures. You go like, hmm, I got to go. Maybe Al Gore will come in my neighborhood and I get a photograph. And right, I right. Can do it, you know, so that's the same way I do. When I'm in life, like if I'm traveling somewhere, then I'll just draw from life or, or a country or wherever. It's like you're saying in New York, I've been here so long that I've drawn like someone will say, want to draw at me? And I go, all right, I can't be on this corner or this corner. I've drawn everything, every building, every brick, every fire hydrant, every so you get burnt out. You're just trying. To That's interesting. Joe and I were wondering, too, because these right. these drawings are like super detailed, especially the landscape ones in particular. Mm -hmm. And we were wondering, it looks like you just go right in there with pen. Or with something permanent, but do you take time to lightly lay it out with a pencil first, or are you just go right in with pen and and see what happens? So it's a kind of a combination. So the ones where I travel, the landscapes, buildings, all that stuff, never. I just take a pen and I go because when you're away, I'm usually with my wife or whatever, so I can't be like I'm going to stay here for five hours or I'll have to 
she was like, I'm going to go do stuff or go to a museum, then I'm going to shop and I'll come back in like three hours. So I, right. time is of the essence. So you can see how anal and everything I am. I could leave out skies or parts of things and draw, make them up on airplanes, you know. So I'll get what I can remember stuff in my head. But then anything else where it's really like conceptual, I'll just like pull from the internet like photos and things. Yeah. So it's just sort of a combination. But I sort of feel like I don't have to prove anything. Like if I'm here, I can draw and people are like, oh, you can draw. Also, I can do a full character draw and make it look like them without using pencil. But I just do that a lot too, especially character chores. If you don't quite have them, the eye is off a thing, you know? Yeah. So I can, I can ju- sort of do right. just enough, then I go, I got them. Because sometimes I'll have to erase like eyes not right they have like what's not working what right it's a game of inches you're like i go there it is you know yeah so it's it's a combo you know i was curious because it, it looks like nothing is laid out because i've been doing it for so long and you're so confident in your lines and and so it sounds like that's that's how it mainly is this book is incredible and i i'm really shocked to find out that your all of your sketchbooks are just like filled to the brim because you would hate to see my sketchbook there it's a mess that <laughs> nothing's finished there's pages ripped out you know hey, Lewis, that's your Lewis, look. Pl- plug plug the book plug the book <laughs> yeah the book if you don't have the book it's called all my photographs are made with pens and when did this book come out uh, maybe like 3 years ago or so okay but you could see like in a weird way how the whole thing is a concept and that's the advertising too like a lot of people like my urban sketches or how i draw or whatever Mine, I was like, I have to think of an idea and then follow the idea through on the whole. It's more of my anal retentiveness and advertising. But it's sort of fear of being a failure. I go, I have to make this more interesting. How can I torture myself to make more details? And that's why when you look at James Jean, you go like, oh, my God, like, why should I even continue? (laughs) You know, he's the guy that you go like, all right, you know, I'm not afraid to be in the room with the great people. So it's like, and it took me many years. So like saying like, when I'm traveling and do a drawing, I just go straight to ink. I make so many like mistakes, but I just, the lines are still there. I just leave those mistakes. And I, but because you're bamboozled by, I'm putting so much stuff in there. There's so much sleight of hand that it all goes away or evolves into the thing. And over time, I would go back and look at James Jean's work from years and years and years ago. And then one day I'm like, oh, that's because he made mistakes. Those are cover-ups. Yeah. You know, at the time and year after year after year, it took me so long to go like, oh, that's what he's doing. Now I'm doing that innately. But oh, all that beautiful little piece of paper and thing that's over that, like he didn't think of that. He fucked up. And then he covered that up and drew up. I'm like, oh, I see. It all starts to make sense. I have a a question that's more of a personal question because I just started using more watercolor and mm-hmm. I like dry mediums for the most part. I use a lot of right. pens and charcoal pencils. What paper do you think is handles watercolor the best? Because I'm having such a hard time finding a good paper that just doesn't buckle after two, you know, run overs with the water. See, it's weird because I almost do everything in sketchbooks. So a lot of it, my stuff is done in moleskin sketchbooks. So the moleskin ones, not the ones that are made for watercolor. So I'm literally forcing the water onto a surface that doesn't want to. Yeah. And it does buckle and stuff too. But uh, like now I do the whole um, staining of it first. It's all buckled and weird. So when it fully dries, I close the book, put the band around, then I'll draw the next day and it sort of flattens it out, you know. So the buckle and the flat and all that stuff is there. So I'm not an expert of like buying separate pieces of watercolor paper. or Yeah. And some books I have... They just kind of work for the watercolor, but it's in a book. And I find that the book flattening always works. But the one thing that I was doing for a while, because I used to have an Etsy store and I would sell them, 
was I got those watercolor block, mm-hmm. you know, those ones. So it's glued all on the side. And then I would do all the stuff there and it wouldn't buckle. And I, when I took it off at the end, it was perfectly flat. It never did that. And whether it's cold press or hot press in those, they have them both. And I guess it's your preference. You know, it's like one takes watercolor better, but the pen not as well. The other doesn't take the watercolor as well, but the pen works better. But I find I can work on either of them. But Interesting. I think that people, unless you're just a pure watercolorist, by doing what we do drawing on it, you'll always have a buckle factor. But try the blocks there. All right. I was just curious. I've been using this media paper for the longest time, and I love the paper, but it just doesn't take watercolor that much. But it sounds like... I'm going to have a buckle unless I switch to something like that anyway. And, it's, you know, it's not the biggest deal because I can flatten it out. Yeah, it's just sort of like making mistakes. Just learn to love it. You know, oh, it'll always buckle. I love that buckle. That's cool. Yeah, it just... didn't buckle as much. I'm unhappy. <laughs> I always worry when I send art out to people, they're going to get it and be like, why is the paper like buckle? Or, but nobody seems to care. It almost adds to it or something. Right, exactly. If I can't think of any other questions. I, you answered what I really wanted to talk about was the David Johansson because I'm a huge New York Dolls fan. So I was really happy that you, you talked about doing that video. I was really curious. That's so cool. Yeah, thanks so much. Cool. Thanks for joining us. We always love hearing from you guys. So definitely email or message us. And we both have an Etsy promotion going on for listeners of the podcast. You just use the promo code thumbnail and it's 25% off most of everything in our stores. So definitely check that out. If you're going to be buying something, you may as well use the promo code and get yourself a little bit of a discount. Yeah. All right. Have a great day, guys. Take care.